Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a great pleasure to be here again and to give the last of my final series of lectures in my three-year term as Gresham Professor of Divinity. And let me begin by saying that I greatly enjoyed my time as Gresham Professor, but uh, I'm finding that the administrative and academic demands of Oxford University are cutting down on the time I have at my disposal to do other things. But it's great to be with you today. And in this final series of lectures, what I want to do is look at some of the big questions that we face as human beings in this complex world, as we both try to make sense of what we see around us and also try and discern meaning, value, and purpose. And these are not empirical things. They're not things we can read off. We have to, if you like, interpret the world, judge the world, in order to arrive at these ideas. And as many of you will know, many are now using the term post-truth to refer to our cultural values, suggesting that we believe what we want to believe and that we take offence when our imagined certainties are challenged. And in these lectures, I want to open up some of these questions using some science, using some religion, as a way of engaging these questions with you. For those of you who haven't uh, heard me lecture before, let me tell you that my object in these lectures is to open up these big questions. And obviously, I'm always going to tell you what I think, but my real purpose is not to impose my views on you, but rather to open up these questions so that you can think about them for yourselves. And I hope that I'll give you lots of food for thought and stimulate both your thinking and your appetite to reflect on some of these bigger questions of life. So let me begin today with a quotation, what I think is a startling quotation from the philosopher Thomas Nagel. Now, I'm sure some of you will have read him. One of his best books, in my view, is his 1986 work, The View from Nowhere. Again, The View from Nowhere which argues that every viewpoint on the world or the nature of meaning is actually a view from somewhere. In other words, it's always located somewhere. There's no universally valid way of looking at things. And this means that we can't escape the condition of seeing the world from our particular location within it. Not much that raises difficulties for traditional understandings of rationality, but Nail's just saying that's the way it is. We've got to get used to that. But here's the quotation I found so interesting, so engaging, so even puzzling, uh, which comes from his 1997 work, which is entitled The Last Word. I'm going to read it out to you, and I think it, it illustrates very well the kind of question I want to raise. Nagel says this, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And it's a fascinating quotation in many ways, because you could say that Nagel's philosophical defense of his atheism could easily be criticized as a retrospective intellectual validation of a belief he'd already arrived at on basically emotional grounds. This is the way I'd like things to be. So let me try and find reasons for saying, actually, that's the way things are. And many of you will have read the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. And Jonathan Haidt uses this very interesting analogy. He talks about the emotional tail wagging the rationalist dog. What he means by that is that very often we, we would like something to be true. And that kind of way drives us 
And we then think up good reasons or persuasive reasons for, in effect, thinking that what we would like to be true is true. And the point I'm making here is not to criticise Nagel. I think Nagel's very interesting, and he's been very helpful in setting up our discussion this afternoon. But it seems almost as if there are lots of people who want to decide what they would like the world to be like, and then finding reasons to defend that understanding of the world. So it seems to me this is a real issue that's worth engaging. Now, we all know that some people don't want there to be a God. We all know there are some people who do want there to be a God, and so on. And basically, the point I'm going to be opening up a little bit this afternoon is this need to be reflective, to ask those hard questions. And, for example, someone who used to be like Nagel was C.S. Lewis. And some of you who've read his autobiography will know that he, he thought of God as the great interferer. And he didn't want anybody to kind of mess up his life, tell him what to do, or indeed interfere with his autonomy. And I think there's a very interesting line of thought there. If we time, we might have opened up a very interesting question, which is that many historians suggest that the origins of modern atheism in the 18th century actually reflect a longing for humans to do anything they want, to think anything they like, rather than, in effect, trying to respond to the way the world is. It's about wanting to be able to be what we want to be without any extrinsic imposition. And you could argue that a desire for total autonomy was expanded into a desire for the elimination of perceived obstacles to that kind of freedom, and of course that might include the notion of God. But of course this works always. It's not as if this is an argument against atheism, an argument against religion. It's basically something about the way we are as human beings. And I've no doubt there are some people who believe in God because it offers them some kind of consolation or support. But my point is that really this seems to be the way our culture is heading. The invention of a world we would like and a refusal to think about it rigorously and critical. And that's one of the reasons I'm going to say that I'm so supportive of the work of Gresham College because it gives people an opportunity to reflect on these big questions about life in an informed and critical way. And in my view, Gresham College is a very effective antidote to this post-truth trend in our culture. Now, my six lectures in this coming year will focus on the human quest for meaning and how we try and answer these by a number of means. And I'll be looking particularly at science and religion, because I hold Oxford's Chair of Science and Religion, so it's a very natural thing for me to do. And I hope that you'll find the questions I open up to be interesting. Now, the quest for meaning, of course, doesn't just involve science or religion. It also involves philosophy. But I want to raise here a question which I think troubles me, and maybe it troubles you as well. The American philosopher Susan Wolfe recently noted that actually the question of meaning is rarely asked in professional philosophical circles nowadays. And in one of her recent writings on this theme, she suggests that the question of meaning, for example, what is the meaning of life, tends to be raised by naive young students whose lack of sophistication causes professional philosophers to cringe with embarrassment. However, I want to emphasize this really is 
an important question. Social psychologists emphasize the importance of this idea, whether or not professional philosophers agree. And you might think, for example, of Roy Barmeister, a well-known social psychologist who has done lots of careful empirical work, which shows that, um, that, that as human beings, whether we're right, whether we're wrong, but just because we're human beings, we find the quest for meaning or purpose or value to be really important, and it feeds into the way we feel, the way we act. In other words, it's linked with things like well-being. And in particular, Baumeister points the, imp the importance of purpose, value justification, self-efficacy, that means can I make a difference, and self-worth as issues which feed into how we feel about ourselves, how we function as human beings. Now, traditionally, of course, these concepts of meaning have been met by religion. However, the erosion of the societal influence of religion has led to something of a value gap, which modern society has tried to fill in a number of ways. And one of the questions I want to open up in this lecture, and indeed in subsequent lectures, is the extent to which science is able to answer these questions, and whether we need answers from other places as well. I mean, for example, psychology is very good at documenting the kind of things that people find meaningful, but it doesn't actually tell us what meaning is. That's a different question altogether. It's one thing for psychologists to make the very important point that human beings seem to be more fulfilled and happy if they feel they've sorted out the big questions of meaning and value. But it's another question to ask, what is that meaning and what are those values? Now, I'm sure many of you will have read um, Alexander Pope's essay on man which dates from the 1730s. I think it's one of the best works of literature of what's sometimes called the Augustan Age. And it's a rich and complex poem, which is actually quite a shrewd reflection on the aspirations of human beings, but also the limits of being human. And above all, our difficulties in making sense of the universe within which we find ourselves placed. And Pope makes the point that we, we find this universe to be incoherent and a bit ambiguous, perhaps characterized by evil as much as good. And Pope, in effect, says well, this may be true, but we've got to take account of our limited rational capacities in reaching this judgment. Perhaps the universe appears to be imperfect or incoherent because of the limits that are imposed on human perception precisely because we are human beings. And Pope's point, and many points in, in this very interesting essay, which many of you know actually takes the form of a poem, is that we are immersed within the flux of things and we can't extricate ourselves from that flux to catch a cantalizing full glimpse of reality, which helps us sort out exactly where we are. So Pope, I think, is really emphasizing that there are limits to what we can know and suggesting we may have to learn to live with some of those limits. 
So how might religion come into this? Well, of course, I don't want to kind of offer you a simplistic response by saying something like religion offers you a God's eye view of the world which allows you to stand above history and look down and kind of see things as they really are. Although, of course, that is an idea that's intrinsic in many religious systems. But what I want to do, if I may, is just note how a philosopher of religion, in this case I'm going to look at Keith Yandel, sees religion. I want to emphasize the importance of sense-making. There's Yandel saying, look, whatever religion is, it seems to be something like this. And here is, I think, more of a description than a definition of what religion is. Our religion is a conceptual system that provides an interpretation of the world and the place of human beings in it. It bases an account of how life should be lived given that interpretation and expresses this interpretation and lifestyle in a set of rituals, instructions, and a big pardon, institutions and practices. So there's some very interesting questions beginning to emerge from this. Now, the title of this lecture is, is this tension between science and religion. Are they at war with each other, or are there other options? And certainly, I'll be exploring a couple of options with you in this lecture and asking you which you think actually matches things the best. But I do need to make the point that the cultural establishment of the West does seem to have become locked into a kind of science versus religion groupthink. Uh, kind of intellectual bubble, if you like, which uh, simply suggests that science and religion are locked in warfare. I'm going to suggest to you that's not really terribly reliable, although I want to concede immediately that there can be points at which science and religion, various forms of religion, can be in tension with each other. And one of the points I want to emphasize is this idea of the warfare of science and religion actually is a relatively recent invention, dating, in fact, from the second half of the 19th century. And if we were to go back to the Renaissance, um, you think of writers like um, um, a whole range of them. Erasmus is a very good example. Thomas More is another. But they would tend to use the metaphor of two books. There is the book of nature. There is the book of scripture. And these two books are different. But when you read them both correctly, they kind of enrich each other. They're different, but they're capable of talking to each other. And they each offer perspectives that gives you a deeper grasp of the significance of our world. The dominant story today, of course, is that science and religion are at war with each other, but that has not always been seen to be the case. And very often, the perception that science and religion are necessarily, perennially at war with each other rests on a kind of reading of history, which I would describe as a golden thread argument, a golden thread argument. What you might ask, do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you. A golden thread argument is basically saying the complexity of history can be simplified greatly if you take one theme and just see that running all the way through. So you foreground or emphasize what fits this golden thread and you disregard the bits that don't fit it. And if you want an example, you might look at Christopher Hitchens' very entertaining book, God is Not Great, which came out 10 years ago. 
And in this work, um, Hitchens gives what I think is almost like a definitive account of this approach, that science and religion are at war with each other. And he gives lots of historical examples to make his point. All his historical examples are true. The question is, are there other historical examples which didn't find their way into this narrative, which make his narrative somewhat problematic? Let me give you an example to make this point, because one of the big issues we always wrestle with is, are there patterns in history, or in effect, are we seeing patterns because we simply focus on these golden threads? Hitchens says, think of the Christian writer, Timothy Dwight, who died in 1811, and who, in effect, was a, a president of Yale College, which later, of course, became Yale University. And Hitchkins makes the point that uh, Dwight opposed smallpox vaccination, which is absolutely right. He did. The problem then is that Hitchens makes this into a global statement of meaning. This is what religion is like. It's always opposing uh, scientific advance like for example, smallpox vaccination. Now, I want to emphasise you know, that, that there is no doubt that there were people like Dwight who did this, but it's more complicated than that. And I could tell other golden thread arguments. Let me just give you two other pieces of historical information which unfortunately don't find their way into Christopher Hitchens' analysis. If they had, I think you, you know, the picture would be much more complex. Jonathan Edwards, who died in 1758, uh, is now seen as America's greatest theologian. He was president of what is now Princeton University, and he died in 1758. As a result of his insistence to his students at Princeton that smallpox vaccination was safe. And to show it was safe, he had himself vaccinated, and it went wrong, and he died as a result. Now, again, you see, it, it's, it's, it's one historical example, but it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't tie in with this golden thread which Hitchens is exploring. And my point is that really history is much more complex than this. And we've got to be careful about, in effect, just cherry picking the bits we like to make them fit our pattern. Sure, we all do it, but really we shouldn't. Or again, we could say, well, maybe we could look ahead. And we can do this very easily by looking at George Bernard Shaw, who died in 1950. And some of you will know, um, uh, Shaw opposed smallpox vaccination back in the 1930s. He ridiculed it as a delusion, a filthy piece of witchcraft, I'm quoting. And he dismissed leading scientists whose work so clearly supported it, like Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister, as charlatans. And of course, as you know, Shaw was an atheist. So this, again, just doesn't fit the picture. I can remember watching with my grandmother, it was a long time ago, uh, one of the earliest episodes of the BBC adaptation of Dr. Finley's casebook. Now, I'm sure many of you uh, in the audience today or listening to this will, will remember that with great affection, you know, with Tanakh Bray and all that. Uh, and Janet, but there was one episode where uh, Dr. Finley had to deal with a couple who refused to have their child vaccinated against smallpox because they'd read George Bernard Shaw. Now, my point is very simple. 
History is complicated, and it's very difficult sometimes to see these general patterns, and sometimes they, these patterns can be imposed on history rather than discerned within it. So I'm just saying we need to be careful about this, and certainly recent scholarship has tended to move away from uh, this idea of some sort of eternal, necessary conflict in science and faith to a much more complex picture where there's an interplay of society, structures, institutions, ideas, individuals, where religion is part of the play, but it's only part of it. And I think that's much more complex, but it does, I think, give us a much more reliable understanding of what is going on. And leading scholars like Peter Harrison have made the point that the respective territories of science and religion can be mapped in different ways, and they are open to multiple interpretations. So one of the points I just want to try and make as we begin to get underway is that actually what we understand by science, what we understand by religion, has varied a lot over the ages. And we've got to be careful we don't freeze things in terms of, for example, the 1870s or something like that. But we're aware that this is an ongoing dialogue and discussion. I mean, for me, science is neither intrinsically for or against religion any more than it's for or against politics. And science rightly objects when religion or politics gets in the way of scientific advance, but rightly applauds when religion or politics encourages scientific inquiry. And it just seems to me there is a, a range of possibilities for interaction here, and I'll be exploring some of these with you as we go along. And you might think of this being like a Venn diagram, in which there are two areas which might overlap to varying extents, which nevertheless remain distinct. So let me begin by talking about science. I used to be a scientist myself when I was young. I took great pleasure in using an old microscope I'd given by an uncle who was a pathologist to look at pond water. I built myself a little telescope to look at the night sky, and I went up to Oxford in 1971 to read chemistry because um, I found science really so exciting. And I want to emphasize that for me, as I know for many others, I'm sure many here today, Science is one of humanity's most significant and most deeply satisfying achievements. And I want to echo that. I think the question is whether there is more that needs to be said. In other words, science is very, very good, but is it good in a limited area? Or is it good right across the whole sphere of human knowledge? And one of my questions to my, my friends who are still scientists will be this. If you use any tool, what you tend to do is end up calibrating it. In other words, figuring out the situations, the circumstances under which it works very well and those under which it doesn't quite work so well. And then using it in those circumstances where it really works and not perhaps applying it where it seems not to work all that well. So one of my questions would be, if we were to calibrate science, what would be its strengths? What would be its weaknesses? I think it's a, it's a really important question. And many of you, I think, will have read Karl Popper, the well-known philosopher of science, and know his phrase, ultimate questions. Again, ultimate questions. And Popper, in many ways, is saying there are some really big questions which are not so much about 
functionality. In other words, how does our universe work? But rather, how do we make sense of it and discern meaning and value? And Popper argued that these ultimate questions basically were existentially significant questions, which really are rooted in the depths of our being, and yet which transcend the capacity of the natural sciences to answer. And I find the physicist John Wheeler very interesting here when he talks about science as an island of certainty in the midst of an ocean of uncertainty. And, and Wheeler is saying, look, um, you know, maybe, maybe this island's gradually getting bigger, but the ocean's getting bigger as well. In other words, that uh, the more we know, so to speak, the more questions are opened up revealing actually how little we know and how much more there is to discover. And so for me, I'd want to suggest that there are limits to science capacity to answer fundamental philosophical questions of, for example, value and meaning, partly because of limits placed on the research method, but maybe also because of limits placed upon ourselves as human beings to be able to figure these things out. So one question I think that arises from this rather nice image of an island of knowledge is this. Why don't we just limit ourselves to that island? In other words, you say, right, we can know this with certainty. Let's not worry about anything else. Why bother about unanswerable questions or questions that might be answered but not with absolute certainty? Why don't you just stick with what we know for certain? And I think there are two answers we might give to this. One of them is that actually we sense that there is more that can be known. And if you like, we're standing on the shores of the island, scanning the horizons, wondering if there is more beyond that horizon, which might be one day within our grasp. Or we might find mysterious objects washed up on the shoreline of our island, possibly pointing to mysterious unknown worlds beyond its coast. So that's one answer, that actually, as human beings, we're inquisitive. We, we kind of we like asking questions. We like asking, what if? We like to begin to speculate. But there's another answer which I think needs to be given as well. If one answer is because we are restless, we're inquisitive, the other answer is going to be that the kind of knowledge that you have on this island of certainty, this island of knowledge, isn't existentially adequate. It doesn't really answer the big questions of life. Now, here's a Spanish philosopher that I quite enjoy reading. And some years ago, he wrote this. And I actually think he's probably right. But it does open up a really interesting question for discussion. Let me read you what he says. Scientific truth is characterized by its precision and the certainty of its predictions. But science achieves these admirable qualities at the cost of remaining on the level of secondary concerns, leaving ultimate and decisive questions untouched. In other words, Ortega is saying... Maybe science is very, very good in certain areas. But because we're human beings, we need other areas to be opened up as well. And so his concern is that science actually is not going 
as deep as you and I as human beings would like it to and look at these questions of meaning and value. And for Ortega, science has a wonderful capacity to explain things while nevertheless not being able to satisfy those deeper longings that lie beyond us. And his point is that human beings, whether they are scientists or not, cannot actually live meaningful lives without answering those deeper questions, even if those answers are simply provisional. Uh, Let me quote from him again. He writes, We are given no escape from ultimate questions. In one way or another, they're in us. Whether we like it or not, scientific truth is exact, but it is incomplete. So there is, it seems to me, there a very interesting question. Again, I'm not for one moment criticizing or downplaying the importance of science. I think it's great. The question is, do we need other sources to help us think about questions like meaning and value and purpose? In other words, if we use the image of a big picture, which Ortega likes very, very much, does science fill in part of that big picture, leaving other disciplines to fill in other parts? Or, in effect, is science filling in part of that picture and that is it? So we've got to learn to live with gross uncertainty about questions like meaning and value and purpose. So I think it's very interesting to ask how we can bring about a dialogue between different human disciplines. I'm going to quote you from Edward Wilson. Edward Wilson, um, in effect, single-handedly founded the discipline of sociobiology back in the 1970s. And one of the things he reflects about a lot is how we, in effect, bring together different aspects of human wisdom to try and help us make sense of ourselves and our world. And actually, he was very, very critical of religion. He felt it very often was very dogmatic. But he also felt that it was getting at something really important which science couldn't really handle. So he wrote these words, which I think are quite nice. The imagery, I think, is very accessible and engaging. We are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. I like that quote. The world, he writes, henceforth will be run by synthesizers. He means people like himself. People who are able to put together the right information at the right time, think critically about it, and make important choices wisely. But the main point he's making is, look, we need to bring together different disciplines and see if these can build up to give us something deeper, something richer, more satisfying than any one of these disciplines alone. Now, up to this point, I'm afraid I've quoted only male authors, so I'm going to remedy that immediately by quoting from an American poet. Not a well-known poet, but in this poem, um, um, Millet, Edison Vincent Millet, talks about the need to try and make sense of an accumulation of facts. And she talks about a meteoric shower of facts raining from the sky. And I'll read this out to you and just let you think about this. It's a very interesting poem. It's clearly written by someone who feels that she has observed this and this and this and this, but cannot see the bigger picture of which she thinks they might be constituent parts. 
upon this gifted age. In its dark hour rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. In other words, you know, we see the threads, but we, we haven't got what it takes to weave them together and see the pattern. And it's, it's a very interesting poem for you to read. It's a sonnet, and uh, she does not see that there is an obvious answer, that in effect our paradox is that we are bombarded with information, but we can't figure out what it means. Look at the image of the loom. There is no loom to weave these threads together. And that actually is, is pretty much the same point that Wilson is making. She's emphasizing the importance of meaning and saying it's not the same as simply observing the world and accumulating facts. And in fact, in my last lecture in this series, I'll be going back to Mr. Gradgrind, who, as I'm sure you will all know, thought that facts were all the human beings needed um, to exist. And of course, that's from Dickens' Hard Times. And I'll be exploring further with you how that doesn't really work. But the point that Mille is making is that facts lie unquestioned, uncombined. She's making the point we need someone, something, to help us take these things and do something interesting with them by allowing us to see the bigger picture of which they are part. And she's, in effect, hinting at an idea which I think many of us have reflected on. You know, we may live in an age of information, but it's not really an age for meaning, and a failure to find meaning can easily lead to despair. So how might we begin to think about how science and religion fit into this? And what I want to do is to look at a way of thinking about this relationship, which was developed by Ian Barber, born in 1923. And Barber basically... Uh, was a physicist who developed an interest in religion and tried to say, it seems to me there are four main ways of making sense of this relationship. Obviously, there are, there are gray areas, there are possible overlaps, possible tensions, but he argued there were four ways of thinking. What I'm going to do is just talk you through them and what they might each mean, ask you which you think really does the job best. And he begins with um, what he calls the conflict approach. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this because in many ways this is the, the dominant narrative of certainly Western culture, although it's not there certainly, for example, in, in Eastern cultures. And Barber makes the point that historically the most significant understanding of the relationship between science and religion is that of conflict or tension or perhaps even open warfare. In other words, this is, this is about a confrontational relationship. It's a battle for cultural authority. In effect, this is a turf war which is ongoing, and one day it's going to result in one party being victorious. They cannot dialogue. They cannot enrich. What they do is they compete in a kind of Darwinian process for intellectual supremacy. And certainly, this is something that uh, we do find repeated. The, notice the story in Ron Numbers. 
talks about the cliche-bound minds of historians, which I think is a little bit unkind. But the point he's trying to make is that there is this danger of, in effect, sloganizing history, sloganizing something very complex and making it something simple, not because it is simple, but because you've tried to make it simple and in doing so have distorted it. But interestingly, Barber, and, and many historians would say he's absolutely right in this, singles out two works as catalyzing this idea that there is this perennial tension. One was published in 1874, one in 1896. The 1874 one is John William Draper's book called A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. And an 1896 one is Andrew Dixon White's History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. These books are not now taken with great seriousness as history, but they were very significant in shaping cultural attitudes. And even though the history has kind of been discredited, the impression still lingers. So Barbara is making the point that this is a very significant cultural attitude. And I guess you would find it today, I mentioned Christopher Hitchens, you might find also in Richard Dawkins. But I want to make the point that we're not simply talking about scientists who don't like religion. We're also talking about some religious people who don't like science. And you might think, for example, of the movement that we call creationism. Uh, creationism is, is not simply the idea that God made things. I mean, most religions take that view. It's a specific way of interpreting that, which in effect produces a scientific theory or a pseudoscientific theory and says this is the way it is. And the example I would give is the writer Henry Morris, who died in 2006, who wrote a critique of modern evolutionary theory in 1989 with the following title, The Long War Against God. And for uh, Henry Morris, um, basically, evolution is simply a satanic idea invented by scientists to discredit religion. So basically, this is a very significant way of thinking about this. I personally don't think it's right as a global characterization of the relation of science and religion, but there's unquestionably the possibility of tension or conflict if either science or faith, so to speak, oversteps their bounds. So what else might there be? Well, the second one Barber talks about is independence. And Barber argues that when you look at the history of this, what you see is a lot of people, both on the scientific and religious side of things, in effect saying, we are so fed up with exaggerated rhetoric, with tensions, that what we say, in effect, is, look, there's science and there's religion, and we keep them apart. In other words, we separate them out, we declare them to lie in different territories, and in effect, they each do their own things, and they don't talk to each other. If you like, it's about, um, in effect, intellectual isolation. Now, I can understand this, although I think, actually, it may reflect more of the politics of American campuses than actually the relation of science and religion. But certainly, you will find this... Um, used quite extensively to try and avoid raising tensions, for example, in high schools 
or in certain public discussions. And this is a statement from 1981 by the American National Academy of Science. I'm going to read it to you. And what it's trying to say is, look, um, science and religion are different. So religious people do their religion. Science people do their science. And they both get on with that without needing to worry about what the others think. Here's what they say. I quote, Religion and science are separate and mutually exclusive realms of human thought whose presentation in the same context leads to misunderstanding of both scientific theory and religious belief. I'll read that again. Religion and science are separate and mutually exclusive realms of human thought, whose presentation in the same context leads to misunderstanding of both scientific theory and religious belief. Now, there are many people who adopt this viewpoint. The best-known one is the American biologist Stephen Jay Gould, who coined a phrase which is, I think, not, not very elegant, not very helpful, but actually it has caught on to some extent. He talks about science and religion having non-overlapping magisteria. Non-overlapping magisteria. A magisterium is a domain of authority. In other words, this is the area which I am competent. What he's saying is religion is doing this, science is doing this. They're different. They don't overlap. They work separately, and there is no need to interact. And certainly you'll find a number of people, in effect, liking this precisely because it emphasizes the independence of science and religion, giving them both intellectual autonomy to get on with what they both want to do. However, Barber himself raises a concern, and it's one that I think is fair. Here's what he says. He says this, this really compartmentalizes reality. That, that's religion, that's science. And he says, life's not like that, I quote. We do not experience life as neatly divided into separate compartments. We experience it in wholeness and interconnectedness before we develop particular disciplines to study different aspects of it. In other words, you know, it's not as if we have um, a sort of predetermined view. This is science, this is religion. We, we experience reality, and then we begin to think that bit could be religion, that bit could be science. And Barber's saying, really, this, this model doesn't really help us do this all that well. But many people find it helpful, as some also do this, which is the model of dialogue. And this is basically the idea which says something like this. There's science and there's religion, and they are different. But they can and they should talk to each other. And actually, that helps to remove misunderstanding. And actually, it might even lead to mutual enrichment. And you find this in a number of um, writers. Um, Pope John Paul II is a very good example of a writer who in effect said, look, they need to talk to each other. Let me quote to you from him. This is from um, late in his time. He wrote, science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. And that, I think, is an approach which has some merit. If I were to choose an example of a writer who adopts this approach, who I think 
is worth reading, I would single out John Polkinghorne. John Polkinghorne, I think many of you will know the name, was a Cambridge professor of physics speciality in quantum theory who turned to the study of theology quite late in life and found that actually he could see how each of these helped him to understand the other better. And Polkinghorne is a good example of a writer who never loses his complete respect for science and feels that there is a real dialogue that can be had with theology which actually moves each of science and religion on while at the same time respecting their distinct identities. And the fourth approach is integration. This is what Barbara himself likes. In other words, that really the object of talking of science and religion is to, in effect, abolish the distinction between them altogether and give us a single holistic view of the world. And again, it's a very interesting idea. I have to say, I just don't think this works. I think that everything we see around us tells us that science and religion make sense as categories, and actually trying to merge them into something integrated really doesn't work all that well. We might say that you can integrate them in to the extent that you bring an intellectual framework which allows you to appreciate their possible commonalities, but all the ones I know also make the point that they are distinct and that that distinction needs to be respected. So Barber's approach, I think, is very interesting. There are all kinds of problems with it. Anything that's simple generally has problems, and this one is no exception. If I could give you some obvious examples, one of the concerns here is that Barber really isn't very good at if I can put it like this, putting things in their historical context. He seems to think simply at the level of ideas and doesn't really engage with social contexts, with institutional agendas, with the kind of sociological forces which you and I know shape people's attitudes. And I think that there's a lot of evidence which suggests that this needs to be brought into play. There's a a writer called David Livingston, based in Belfast, who has specialized in what he calls cultural geography. Cultural geography. It's a very interesting idea. And the point he makes is that uh, you cannot simply talk about ideas because ideas are always embedded in contexts. And therefore, ideas that behave in this way, in that context, actually function in different ways in another one. And he made his name, really, through a groundbreaking study of the reception of Darwinism in two very different contexts, Belfast in his own Northern Ireland and Princeton in New Jersey. And his point was that basically the same ideas met with very different responses because of different social contexts, different leading personalities, and also different ways of presenting those ideas. And again, Livingston simply saying, this is complicated, and we need to realize that there's a lot more to it than what Barber is saying. But that is nevertheless uh, a criticism which doesn't take away from the fact that this fourfold categorization might help us to think about possible networks of relationship. If I had to place myself it would probably be more in the dialogue category, but that's just the way I am on this one. 
The point I'd want to make is that we need to take very seriously what the American philosopher John Dewey famously pointed out as being the real problem which he saw as underlying human thinking in the modern period. He declared that the deepest problem of modern life was, listen to this, our collective and individual failure to integrate our thoughts about the world with our thoughts about value and purpose. Let me read that to you again, because this is something that really mattered to Dewey. Not many people read Dewey these days, but I think he's put his finger here on something really interesting. Dewey died in 1952. The deepest problem of modern life is our collective and individual failure to integrate our thoughts about the world with our thoughts about value and purpose. And I think that, that actually there is wisdom in that. Uh, I think that, that Dewey has really seen there's a concern here, that in effect we, we figure out how something works and think that by doing that we have answered the question, what does this mean and what is its value? And Dewey is saying it's more complicated than that, and we need to find a way of trying to do this. And in some ways, I think, it's picking up on a line from the poet John Keats. Some of you will have read Keats's very long and rambling poem, Lamia. But at one point, he reflects on the tendency to think about science in terms of, these are Keats's words, a dull catalogue of common things. In other words, it, it's just you know, a statement about the world which doesn't really tease out what its deeper significance is. And many of you who've read Max Weber's um, sociological writings will know that he uses this word disenchantment. Again, disenchantment. To talk about the idea that nature is purely functional, we understand how it works, that's it. Now, Weber is saying that really there's something deep within us which is glad to know how things work but thinks that there is more that needs to be said as well. Now, I'm going to um, begin to wrap up shortly. But what I want to do is really lay out the questions that will feed into later questions. And it's really this. Look, we understand how things work. We understand how we work. But what do we mean? How do we generate values? Are those values reliable? Do we matter? These are really big questions. And the kind of things I'm going to be exploring with you in a range of contexts as we go through this lecture series. And my own view is that science is very good at taking things apart so that we can see how they work. But if you like, religious faith is about trying to put them back together again so we can see what they mean. And holding together analysis and synthesis in this way seems to me to be something that's really important. And a religious perspective, at least in my view, doesn't deny anything of the scientific utility of this kind of understanding of how the world works. Although it does challenge its finality. In other words, those who say, this is what science says, and that is all that can be said. I'd be in a camp that says, this is what science says, and we really value it but there is more that needs to be said as well. So again, I'm conscious I've been quoting from a lot of male authors, so I'm going to begin to wrap up now by looking at the uh, venerable um, British philosopher Mary Midgley. Some of you will have heard her speak. She's in her 90s. She is uh, a formidable lady. She's a very clear, very elegant writer. 
And she gives a lot of thought to this question of how we make sense of our world. And I would find her difficult to place on a map, you know, atheism, Christianity, whatever. I think probably um, she is what I would describe as a generous rationalist humanist. But that actually doesn't really matter because the point she's making stands independent of where she places herself. And it's this idea. We and our world are so complex that no single intellectual map is good enough to help us to make sense of it. And she says we need multiple maps if we're really going to do justice to the complexity of our world. She says we need to recognize that there are, I quote, many maps, many windows onto reality, and that there are many independent forms and sources of knowledge. Now, it's an interesting point. And she uses multiple analogies in her writings to try and bring out what she's trying, what she's getting at. And the basic theme is that any one discipline, it might be chemistry, physics, biology, philosophy, theology, whatever, may offer us an angle of approach, but it's only an angle of approach. And if reality is complex, we need multiple perspectives, multiple angles of approach, which somehow we're able to weave together, like as a Millet sonnet, to try and see this bigger picture. It's like looking at a very big building from multiple perspectives. Each perspective is valid, but different. And somehow we've got to find a way of weaving these perspectives together and say the whole thing is bigger than any one angle of approach. And we've got to try and generate that big picture which doesn't reduce things to simply one angle, but is faithful to its complexity. And she gives lots of examples. The one I like best is to think of looking through, the, uh, looking through glass into a very big aquarium where there are lots of plants and, and fish swimming around. And she says this, we cannot see it as a whole from above, so we peer in at it through a number of small windows. Notice the word peer. Peer means we don't quite see as well as we'd like. It's that, that recognition we are not seeing fully. It's a partial perception. We peer at it through a number of small windows. We can eventually make quite a lot of sense of this habitat if we patiently put together the data from different angles. But if we insist our own window is the only one worth looking through, we shan't get very far. And in many ways, that's her point. She's saying, look, um, she's not criticizing any single discipline. She's saying any single discipline is great, but it does have limited perspective because it focuses down so narrowly precisely because it works so well. How then do we achieve that bigger picture by integrating these multiple perspectives? And it seems to me that Mitch's approach opens up some really important possibilities for the enrichment of our vision of life. If you like, we need a rich and generous palette of colors to represent the complexities of our observations of the world around us. And in these lectures, what I'm going to try and do is, is explore what these colors might be, or to use Midsley's analogy, what these small windows might be, 
and how we can begin to weave them together to give us something richer and deeper and more satisfying. And so in my next lecture, which uh, I'll be delivering um, next month, I'm going to look at the idea of sky-watching. In other words, looking at the stars and moon and the planets, which gave rise to astrology, to astronomy, but above all reflects this deep sense that there's something big out there, and we are here, part, a small part of something much bigger. I'm going to look at how we've thought about this, the questions it raises, and some of the questions that we've begun to give. And I look forward very much to being given that lecture next month. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to me today.